You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hello. And today, we want to talk about a topic that actually one of you uh, asked us about, uh, but I've been getting more questions about it over the last couple of years anyways, um, here and there. But uh, the, the subject is direct indexing. Um, it's it's getting a little more uh, attention in part because it's becoming more accessible to more people. In, in short, you know, you, you need less money to, to access a direct index portfolio than you previously needed. Um, so it's becoming a, you know, less of a barrier to entry for folks. So today we're going to talk about what is it, what's the benefit of it, who does it make sense for, and, and you can help see if it's something that you should be considering for your uh, investments um, or if it's something that, that's not for you. So let's see, where should we start, Rochelle? Yeah, well, I think getting some basics down ahead of time is always useful when we have these more technical conversations. So the first thing we want to talk a little bit about is what is an index, which is not the same thing as an index fund, but the index itself. And basically, an index is just a measurement of price performance of a defined set of investments. So people often think about the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 itself is a measure of the aggregate price value of about, there's about 500 companies in this, but it can vary a little bit. Like sometimes they drop off, sometimes they add on. But it's the 500 largest publicly traded companies in the U.S. So the S&P 500 itself is not an investment. It's just tracking the price of those 500 companies. And it it can get really technical in terms of like how we design funds to track those indexes. And that's what like an index fund is. But there's also lots of different indices. So, you know, the Russell 2000 measures the 2000 smallest U.S. publicly traded companies. There's also, you know, um, like indexes of global stock or foreign stock or, you know, specific sectors like real estate healthcare, tech, all of those different kinds of things. And you can't invest directly in the index, but there's lots of different index funds that are designed to track those indexes and help you participate in the performance of those indices. Oh my gosh, complicated. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, there's a lot of uh, indices out there. Um, I've seen some uh, estimates that there's actually more indexes than there are stocks so which means there's a lot of overlap between companies that are on multiple indices if that's the correct plural form of index i think it is um i think so yeah so like you know for example a large you know tech company you know will be on the s p 500 they'll be on you know the 500 growth index the russell 1000 growth index will be on probably the nasdaq nasdaq 100 um you know so there is a lot of overlap and some indexes are just broad you know large u.s companies small u.s companies growth companies value companies others are like really 
specific, um, you know, such as like a sector fund, like healthcare stocks, for example, or a real estate index. Or the cannabis index. Yeah, and it even gets more boiled down. Like there's cannabis indexes that track marijuana companies. There's cybersecurity indexes that will track companies dealing specifically in cybersecurity. So, you know, any subset of our economy that exists out there, there are there's likely one, if not multiple, indexes or indices that track the companies dealing in that world. So. You can get really specific, you can be really broad, or uh, all of the above. Um, so to invest in you know, said index, you know, we, again, we can't invest directly in the index, but there are generally mutual funds and ETFs, um, which for your concern are more or less the same thing. It's just a collection of a bunch of different stocks. Um, uh, they trade a little bit differently on the exchanges. But mutual funds and ETFs that... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to track that price performance, as Rochelle said, of those underlying indices. You know, so for example, you know, if it we're investing in an S&P 500 index, you know, they, it's trying to track the price performance of the 500 largest U.S. companies. And it's pretty easy. Well, maybe easy is not the right word. It's pretty straightforward to operate an index that tracks something like the S&P 500. You just buy all 500 company stocks. Very simple. Um, you, know, you could write you just a have to have some fancy algorithms, basically. Yeah, you could have a computer program run the fund. Now, they're not going to buy all 500 stocks because there is some turnover from year to year. Um, you know, but they'll probably buy the majority of them, a, a large representative sample. And you start seeing that more so with, you know, smaller indices like the Russell 2000, for example, which is the 2000 smallest companies. There's not going to be 2000 stocks in that index fund, you know, because they would have to change over quite frequently as, as companies get larger and move off that index and go to like the mid cap or large cap index. If companies go out of business, go private, merge, get acquired, you know, so it's kind of, it would be kind of hectic if they're constantly trying to buy all 2000 of those companies. So they just buy a representative sample that, that, um, based on their work and the algorithm, et cetera, is going to pretty darn closely track, um, that underlying index. Now, relatively straightforward to track an index of heavily traded companies like the S&P 500. It becomes more challenging to to replicate some of those smaller indices like the cannabis one, for example, where, you know, the company stocks might not be as heavily traded. So you're going to have, you know, uh, a little bit more price disparity um, and it's going to be harder to track perfectly, but, you know, it'll still be pretty close. Definitely. Yep. I think that, you know, they're all trying to accomplish the same thing, which is allow people to participate in the market and in a really broadly diversified way without having to have a bunch of money to directly invest in these individual companies, which is where, you know, this direct indexing kind of comes in a little bit more. And the benefit of those in, um, investing in the index funds themselves and ETFs and things like that is that they're typically a fairly low cost compared to a lot of actively managed mutual funds. It's just like we talked about before, run by a computer program, and you don't need a lot of resources or as many people to run a fund that's based on an index. You don't need a whole bunch of research analysts deciding which individual companies to buy and sell because the computer is telling you which individual companies to buy and sell. 
Um, there's often less turnover with the individual stocks that the fund holds as well. And that comes down to basically the fund itself trying to buy and sell those individual stocks to more you know, closely align with what the index itself is. Mutual funds or actively managed mutual funds do that a little bit more as they think like, okay, this company is good to hold on to, this company is not good to hold on to. They make decisions based on whether or not they think that the price is appropriate for that stock anymore. An index doesn't necessarily care if the price is appropriate for that stock. They're not going to do a whole bunch of research about that. They're only going to sell it as the, the position chains within the index. So the turnover itself can create what's called capital gains taxes, which is where this conversation is going to go a little bit more. But basically, if the fund is selling out of an individual position, or even selling part of that position, they pass capital gains on to their shareholders. And then you have capital gains that you have to claim on your taxes because the fund sold part of an investment. And then so even in an index fund, there's some turnover, even if it may be less than a mutual fund. So that's one thing that can be an advantage to index fund because it's less. But also, you know, we're going to go into a little bit more of how that can be potentially a bad thing. Um, statistically, also, you know, a lot of index funds outperform actively managed funds. Like that's, if you look at it in general, just statistically, they do. Like there are some funds that fall outside of that, some actively managed funds that have outperformed. But if you give them long enough, a lot of times, most times, index funds will outperform. It's kind of like, you know, when we're trying to pick and choose winners and losers, we don't do a great job because we don't have all of the information. There's lots of things that are really, really unpredictable about how companies will perform longer term. So we're trying to make educated decisions with incomplete information, then that can be really hard to do. And I think it's it's not necessarily that the the funds can't outperform on a nominal basis. It's when you factor in the costs of operating an actively managed fund, net of expenses, it becomes more difficult to beat the index, um, just because the index fund has a much lower overhead, so much much lower hurdle to clear. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they can't do it. Like there's a number of active funds out there that consistently beat their benchmarks, consistently outperform over time, or, or maybe the the just sheer performance isn't the objective you're shooting for. You're trying to look at a certain strategy. Maybe you want like an, a risk adjusted fund that that you know the objective is to go down less in bad years and go, but it's going to go up less in good years. And yeah, over time you're probably going to have less uh, performance uh, in the positive direction, but it's going to be a smoother ride for you. So there's, you know, different strokes for different folks, right? You know, you have all sorts of sizes and flavors of, of investments out there. Um, so yeah, we don't want to just be super sheer, you know, narrow minded when it comes to looking at these things, but yeah, so index funds appealing for most people. Like if you're a do it yourself investor, I usually encourage you to just stick with index funds. It's simpler. You can be diversified without too much thought uh, involved, but if you have the tools and the resources to really analyze and understand what some of these uh, investment funds do and objectives are, then yeah, it could make sense to, you know, expand beyond the, the plain vanilla index funds a little bit. Um, but uh, let's see, direct indexing. So we have the index fund, which allows you to be the big, I think when we might've glossed over a little bit, diversification is, uh, is a big thing here. And it's, you know, up 
we're we're spoiled nowadays where there's like zero minimum investment requirements there's essentially no trading fees on stocks anymore um you know if we were having this conversation 50 years ago like you know what like index funds didn't exist um you had heavy commissions when you were buying or selling stocks like it, it was a lot more difficult to invest your money than it is today but uh, mutual funds, index funds, ETFs, uh, you know, they allow you to, to diversify with a, essentially $1. Like with your first dollar, you can own thousands of companies. Um, and, uh, and, and diversification is important you know, for a number of reasons. You don't want to throw all your eggs in one basket because if a company goes out of business and that's the only company you own, well, your money is now zero. Um, so we want to spread that risk around, invest in a little bit of everything. You'll always be invested in the best performing thing uh, in a given year, and you'll never be overly exposed to the worst performing thing in a given year if you're well diversified. So for most people, ETFs, mutual funds, index funds, that's the way to go because you don't have the ability to uh, invest millions of dollars right out of the gates. But if you do have a healthy amount, and it doesn't have to be millions, it could you know be as little as like 250K or 500K, but that's where we could start exploring some of these, uh, you know, a little more advanced strategies, maybe is the right word. So a direct index is rather than buying, you know, an S&P 500 index fund where you're a shareholder of the fund, you don't actually own the stocks themselves. You own the fund that invests in those stocks. Your money is pooled with a bunch of other people's money with an, in, with a direct index. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you got to typically do it through a, a third party company. It's, it's called a separately managed account where you have a, you know, a, a manager uh, working on your behalf. I, I suppose you could do it yourself, but that would be very cumbersome and time consuming, but you're actually going and buying the individual stocks to replicate the index's performance. So if it's an S and P 500 fund that you're trying to replicate, you know, you're going to buy the 500 companies or maybe not all 500, but a strong representative sample of those companies to ultimately mirror the performance of the index. So because you have to go out and buy the individual stocks, you need a decent amount of money. Most companies probably require at least a hundred thousand dollars to do, you know, an individual index replication for you. Um, but with that comes some benefits, most notably on the tax side of things. So you can, in a given year, let's say the S&P 500 is positive. You know, as a, in aggregate, it's, it's positive, but probably, you know, 60% of the companies were positive for the year and 40% were negative on their stock. I'm just making this up, but you know, hypothetically. So in whole, we're positive, we're happy, but you know, 40% of our portfolio was actually down. Um, when it comes to taxes, you only pay taxes when you realize a gain on an investment, which means you, you know, you're selling an investment for more than you bought it for or receiving a capital gain from a fund that sells the investment. But losses offset gains dollar for dollar. So if we have 40% of our portfolio negative, we could single out those individual positions and the individual tax lots, which are, you know, every time you buy a position, it creates a new tax lot at the share price you bought it at. Losses offset gains dollar for dollar. 
So we can single out the losers, sell them, use the, the losses to offset gains elsewhere in the portfolio. So if we wanted to move off a winning position, we could with minimal tax impact. It allows you to rebalance more effectively. And, and it really helps mitigate the tax consequences of investing. Yeah. Is it also partially that after you've held the funds for quite a while, if there are, you know, positions that maybe have decreased in value in the index, but you have lots of gains in that, you can choose to hold on to it? Or, and do they sometimes do that with these SMA funds? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, the first and foremost, I think the goal is replicate the index, but like the objective one A and one B, one B would be minimize taxes. So most all of these direct indexes are proactively tax loss harvesting. Now they might not do it down to the penny every day, um, you know, the because it, it becomes a little you know, cumbersome. If we're harvesting a dollar worth of losses, we have to move off of an entire position just to save a dollar. Um, maybe not worth it, but, uh, but yeah, they'll, you know, try and single out, all right, which positions can we get rid of? Um, and then what positions can we replace them with to still mirror the index, but, you know, reduce our tax bill as much as possible. So maybe as a whole, you know, you put your hundred thousand dollars in the fund is worth at the end of the year, 120,000, you know, we had a 20% gain in the index uh, fund for that year. Um, but let's say on paper, there's also 10,000 of losses within the fund. So we have, you know, 30,000 of gains, 10,000 of losses for a net 20,000 gain. Well, let's single out those 10,000 of losses, uh, which is going to save us um, in capital gains taxes, because that $10,000 loss will offset $10,000 worth of capital gains elsewhere in that portfolio or in other portfolios, you know, the, it's you as an individual, um, person, your taxes, um, it aggregates across all your accounts. And if you have a net loss for the year, you know, more losses than gains on paper, you can deduct up to $3,000 off of your income for tax purposes. And then the excess loss carries forward to the next year to be, you know, used to offset future losses. So yeah. it becomes, you know, those numbers just become more impactful the bigger the account is. You know, if we're talking, oh, 10,000 of loss, sure, it'll save us a few thousand in taxes. Um, but if we have a million dollars and it's $100,000 in loss, and now we're talking about potentially 30,000, 40,000 in tax savings. Um, okay, now we're That's talking. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I'm sure that one other benefit is also that as we're having to sell things that maybe have performed well, if we can choose older tax lots that now have long-term capital gains instead of short-term capital gains, like that can be really helpful. And there's all sorts of things from a tax planning perspective that we don't necessarily think about when we hold mutual funds because we don't have as much control over it. But yeah, I think it can make a lot of sense for people that have quite a bit of money to invest in, in these taxable brokerage accounts. Yeah. Now, there are additional costs associated yeah. with it, you know, because you're going to have to pay the manager for overseeing that direct index that, that's being replicated for you. Um, but you're avoiding the fund expenses. Like if you're investing in an index fund, you have your mutual fund expense or ETF fund expense. Um, you know, so it's a little bit of a, you know, offset there, but you know, still the, the management fees will be a little bit more expensive as a result. Um, versus if you just went out and bought a portfolio of some low cost index funds, 
but the the idea here would be that the tax efficiency over time outweighs that management expense on the portfolio otherwise like why would you even bother doing it so really like it's really geared towards you know one people with larger portfolios that have the means to do it because you know if we don't just want one Index. I mean, I suppose you could, but we, if we want to be truly diversified, you probably want, you know, the S&P 500, maybe the small cap index an international index. You're going to want a few of these to have a well-rounded portfolio, but it's, it's geared towards someone who is in a higher tax bracket to where, you know, tax efficiency is, is, is more of a concern. You know, if you're a resident in a, you know, 12 to 22% tax bracket, like it's not... It doesn't matter that much. Your capital gains taxes aren't really uh, hurting you. They're not rocking the boat too much, no. that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure you could, you know, if you wanted to just do the S&P 500 and maybe you could hold, you know, your, your foreign assets in a, you know, a regular mutual fund account or something like that. I'm sure there's like some some moderate ways or kind of like a little of this, a little of that ways that you could approach this. For sure. But you, yeah, but you'll definitely need like a, a good chunk to start. And I think maybe you might need a good chunk in cash to start also. Existing brokerage accounts could potentially be used for this. But, you know, if you've had those assets for a while, you may already have a lot of capital gains in that account. In order to switch into something like this, you'd have to sell those positions to use that money to buy these new positions. And that is automatically going to trigger gains if you have growth in that account. And so, you know, that's the opposite of what the point is. <laughs> we don't want to trigger a lot of capital gains to avoid capital gains. Like it just doesn't necessarily seem to make sense unless you know your income tax bracket is going to be changing and it's going to be higher. And that could potentially be a reason to do that. But yeah, you just have to do that cost benefit analysis. Like, hey, I've absolutely. got a quarter million dollar brokerage account. And, you know, coming off of 2022, where we had a big down year, a lot of your gains from the previous years, unrealized gains were probably wiped out. And then even though this 2023 has been positive, you may not, you know, have fully recouped the losses from 2022. And, and, and yeah, maybe you're, you know, only sitting on like a 20 or 30,000 unrealized gain and you just got to, you know, make the decision. All right. We, if we were to sell out of this, we'd have, you know, a little bit of tax implication now, but you know, moving forward long term, do we feel like this would would ultimately be more beneficial in the long run? So, you know, short term pain for long term gain. Uh, but yeah, if you have cash, you know, it makes it a lot easier because then you're, uh, you know, you're you're starting with a clean slate. Um, so a little more, a little more of an analysis needed for someone who. Uh, um, who, who has an existing portfolio, but that's where, like you said, Rochelle, you know, it might not be an all or nothing thing. Maybe, all right, let's do the S and P 500 for our domestic large cap exposure with this direct index. So maybe we got a 500 K portfolio. Let's carve out a hundred K of it to put in the S and P 500. The rest stays in our more traditional ETFs, mutual fund strategy, and you can still have a, a very tax efficient portfolio operating, um, with, with kind of this hybrid, uh, allocation, if you will. So we've got, you know, one sliver that's, that's extremely tax efficient. The others that are, you know, pretty darn tax efficient and, uh, life's good. Yep. Definitely not for everyone. You know, like, like Corey was saying, if you're a resident, 
I don't know why you would maybe do this. Like, there's not a whole lot of income tax consequences with capital gains, but you know, your income will be increasing over time. So obviously it can be a consideration. I think it also may be overly complicated for some people. You know, there's lots of folks out there that just want to keep things simple and, and not introduce a lot of things that, that create, you know, things that they may not be able to track on their own very well. Like there's less control. Like we have to, especially if we're having an SMA help, like it's probably a longer term commitment. We don't necessarily want to you know, switch that strategy up because obviously there could be some some big capital gains consequences in the future if you decide to make changes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could, you know, roll say, it over I, in kind. I, yeah, and, just roll it over, yeah. roll the individual position. But yeah, you still got those individual positions and the tax lots associated with them. So yeah, it's going to be a yeah. Don't just say, oh, this seems like a fun thing to try. <laughs> it's you'll want to, you know, probably be serious about. Hey, we want to. This sounds like a good strategy for a long term investment, uh, tax efficiency, etc. And um, and yeah, I mean, that's really the big objective. Is what's the most tax efficient way we can do this? And this is for your you know traditional stock bond mutual fund type portfolios this is arguably going to be the most tax efficient way to go about it but yeah it does add some complexities some additional costs and headaches and challenges that you know you may or may not want to deal with absolutely fun to explore new ideas that's mm -hmm. for sure yeah <laughs> keep the questions coming we appreciate them we'll see you next time we would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast, on our Finity Group YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.